In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I once was given advice. I don't remember if I was given it directly or if I just heard it from someone. And the advice was something like this. If your sermon makes sense without Jesus, it wasn't a very Christian sermon. That might be an overstatement, but inasmuch as it's true, it's really true about any part of our faith. If any of it makes sense without Jesus, it's not a particularly Christian thing that we're believing. If what we believe about God leaves Jesus out, we've started from the wrong place. Fortunately for me, if there's any sermon in which it's easy to keep your focus on Jesus, Christmas morning is it. It's hard to get this one wrong. But John's gospel, when we think about Christmas, John's gospel doesn't sound very Christmassy to our ears. There's no, there's no shepherds, there's no angels, there's no, there's no census, there's none of the things we encounter in Luke's or Matthew's gospel. But the beauty and wonder of what we are celebrating this morning is contained in every phrase. It's dense in this first chapter of John. And I chose a less frequently used translation this morning because part of what I want to do is try and look at Christmas with fresh eyes to hear the story and have it enliven us anew. John starts at the very beginning, not just the beginning of the story of Jesus of Nazareth, but the story of a whole. In the beginning, he writes, was the word echoing the words from Genesis, that we're starting all the way back before time. And we'll come to learn that while John is actually referring to this idea that's widely held in his time and place, the concept of a logos, of a first principle that was the essence of reality. This was popular among his day, and he's borrowing that idea, but he does something unusual with it. His audience may have heard about an abstract principle or a unifying theory of everything, but John says it isn't just an idea, it's a person and he made himself known to us, and let me introduce you to him. In fact, John's whole gospel, the point of it, he says time and time again, is to invite you to know this person, Jesus, and to believe in him. And this him, the origin of reality itself, God who was before everything, who is light itself, life was in him. This life was the light of the human race. Darkness can't overcome it. This is high language we expect to hear of God, this high-flowing language, that capital W word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The very first heresies, the first ideas that sprung out of the Christian community that were rejected as incompatible with what it means to be a Christian, the first heresies were not that Jesus wasn't fully God, a thing we often feel like we have to defend now, but that Jesus couldn't possibly have been fully human, that God couldn't have fully taken on human flesh because God doesn't need us. God has no need to make himself flesh. He could do things from afar. And I guess in some sense, God doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't owe us anything. And when humanity devours itself up, there is no obligation from God to step in and stop us. He made us, and he could just let us crash the car and be done with. And God could choose to save humanity from itself in any number of ways. There are there are a number of theological treatises that have said this is why God had to do things the way he did. But I sort of like to think, well, God could figure out any number of ways to save us. But this is the way that God chose. Of all the possible ways he could have forgiven sins to save humanity, God chose this, that the word became flesh. This is how God loves us. The way in which he loves us is to show up among us, to condescend, to empty himself, to offer grace to anyone. As John says, to anyone who did accept him, he gave the right to become God's children. Yes, to anyone who believed in his name. Anyone has that access. That's how God chose to do this. 
He had no obligation to, he had no need to, but out of an abundance of love for us and for his creation, this is what he did. And he did it in such a way that they wouldn't all recognize what they were seeing. In Hebrews, it talks about how many times God spoke through prophets, and it speaks about Jesus as holding all things together, and he is the most revealed God has ever been to us. And yet, when he was the most revealed to us, many people didn't recognize him for who he was. His own family said, who is this person? The people who lived around him said, we know this guy. We know his family. Who is this guy who thinks he can preach these things to us? He was mistaken for someone and something else. Those who ought to have known better did not recognize him, but some did. Those who had eyes to see, those who had faith. And this is why we gather today and every Sunday, because we believe that the very nature of reality through whom all existence is held together chose to love us enough to come among us, to forever unite humanity to God in the incarnation, in becoming a human child. We're going to see a few more children here in a few minutes, and we will find their noise and their cacophony delightful, I'm sure. And, and we will notice something. There's something about children, especially when you find a newborn, simply how utterly weak and dependent they are. And what we believe about Jesus is that he became that weak, that dependent, that fragile. If you have held a newborn, it is a terrifying experience because you hold them and you say, this tiny creature is so dependent in this moment. And that type of person is who God chose to be. That is how he loves us. And while there are many ways to reach out and understand God, to ask questions and to reason about the divine, many philosophers have done really good work in this. In fact, the Christian tradition borrowed much of their thinking later on in the church's life. Nobody has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is intimately close to the Father, except Jesus, except when we see Jesus who brought him to light. And so on Christmas morning, we celebrate God's presence, the incarnation. Emmanuel, God is with us. And yet, how do we do that on this side of the ascension? It's easy for the disciples who got to eat and dine and put their fingers in Jesus' side, which all of them did. The word made flesh, but then that flesh died, was resurrected, gives us hope of the life of the world to come, but that flesh is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so on Christmas morning, I can talk a big game about God being among us and his presence being among us, but it feels strange because we still can't quite see him. But maybe we can. Maybe in the same way that many who saw Jesus didn't understand who he was, maybe there are ways in which we can see Jesus that we just need to have the eyes to see. In fact, Jesus himself told us of two ways, at least, that he would be present among us. The first is that he says in Matthew 18 that when two or three gather, he is there. We believe very specifically as Anglicans that he is present to us when we celebrate communion in a unique way. But we also believe that when we are with other Christians, Jesus is somehow mystically there as well. That here on Christmas morning, when we don't even have an organist and we're singing a cappella, and, and I love you all, but we're just slowly flatting our pitch as we sing. And that's okay. That's what happens when you sing congregationally. That's all right. When that happens, when we gather and sing to Jesus, that he is present very much here in a unique way. And just a few chapters later, Jesus told us that whenever we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and give shelter to the homeless, we are encountering him. We are looking in his eyes. And that passage in particular, both the sheep and the goats say, when did we feed you? It wasn't immediately apparent to them, 
that they were encountering Jesus. But they were. Any time that we go out and we serve others, Jesus says that the service we're rendering goes to him. And so it may be hard to believe with our eyes, with our senses, that we are encountering the reality, the, the word, the very existence, everything that holds everything together. It's hard to think that, but that's what the Bible tells us, is that when we are doing these things, we are encountering God incarnate, the most revealed God is. He has spoken through the prophets. He has spoken through all these other ways. He reveals himself in nature, and we can discern things about who God is by imagining who a God could be who made this amazing world, even if it's warm on Christmas Day. We can do that, and yet, even more so, God is revealed in others, when we gather as the body and when we serve others. And in both of these places, we can love others the way that Jesus loved us, in weakness and humility, in offering ourselves to others, in being willing to be weak and dependent, in being willing to put ourselves second, And in so doing, we render service not just to the other, but to the very word made flesh who first love us. That is how we fulfill the great commandment in loving God and loving others. It's loving his people who are both in the church gathered and out of the church. And so on Christmas Day, we celebrate and we sing and we gaze at the love of God, of grace and truth made known to us in that human weakness. The glory of the Almighty seen in the face of a baby who had no need of us, who is completely fine without us and yet loved us enough to come among us and then invites us to love others in the very same way, looking in others' eyes and recognizing when we gather in Christ's name, he is here, and when we serve others, he is there as well. May God give us eyes to see that we might believe and be accepted as children of God. Amen. Please stand. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty.